I'm Shelley Schlender for the KGNU Science Show, How on Earth. Here's an extended interview with University of Pennsylvania researcher Morris Birnbaum. A study by Birnbaum indicates that the most widely used diabetes drug, metformin, blocks a hormone called glucagon that signals the liver to make sugar by melting muscle. Here's Morris Birnbaum. I'm Morris Birnbaum. I'm a professor of medicine and cell biology at the University of Pennsylvania member of the Institute for Diabetes, Obesity, and Metabolism at the Perlman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. Well, that explains why you're interested in this drug called metformin. Is it really the most popular and widely used drug for diabetes? It's not only the most widely used drug, it's also uh, the re- currently recommended as the first drug to try in a new diabetic who needs drug therapy. After, you know, after somebody's diagnosed with type 2 or adult onset diabetes, and uh, the decision is made that they need to be treated. The first recommendation, of course, is always diet and exercise, but that often uh, is not successful. Uh, The first drug that's currently recommended almost universally by every panel that considers this is indeed metformin, and there are uh, apparently more people in this country on metformin, certainly for diabetes, uh, than any other drug. And just to clarify, this drug, metformin, works for people who have something called insulin resistance, meaning that their cells are having trouble responding to hormone signals. But it's not so useful for somebody whose pancreas is dying or is very weak. That kind of uh, diabetes metformin doesn't seem to help. So that's a clue about how it works. Right, exactly. That's, that's absolutely correct. Though it's still, you know, it still isn't entirely clear whether it makes insulin work better or does the same thing that insulin does. In other words, for, for, you know, for somebody taking metformin, that's probably not a terribly important distinction. But for those of us trying to figure out its mechanism of action, that is how it works, that's, that's very important. The problem is that somebody who's, who's, whose pancreas is insulin-producing beta cells have already failed. The small effect of, the relatively small effect of metformin isn't going to make a big difference to them. The, that type of individual absolutely needs insulin. But for somebody who has, as you mentioned, so-called insulin resistance, where the insulin is not doing the job that it's supposed to, uh, then the type of um, uh, increased control that metformin uh, can provide uh, can be very, very significant for that individual. Well, let's look at that phrase that insulin is not doing the job that it's supposed to. There are some people who have diabetes who have higher insulin levels, 10 times or 100 times higher insulin levels than you or me, and still their blood sugars are way up because the cells are resisting the signal of insulin. So do you think of it that insulin isn't doing the job, or do you think that the cells are fighting, listening to the instructions of insulin? Right. I think it's, it's, it's more the latter. So the insulin is there. There's nothing wrong with the insulin. Um, it's, as you mentioned, it's in much, much higher levels than, uh, than it is in a normal person who doesn't have diabetes, but it isn't carried, carrying out its action. You know, much of the interest over the last 50 years now has been trying to understand exactly what it is about those cells that cause them to no longer respond to insulin. Diabetes is thought of as a, a quote, maladaptive disease. That is to say, it isn't a disease that's, that's just purely something going wrong with the body. For example, if you think of cancer or infectious disease, you know, the body really isn't trying to do anything good. It's just uh, bad luck and something bad is happening. However, in diabetes, the way it's generally perceived is that the body is trying to adjust 
to an external situation, but it just isn't doing it the right way. The most conventional um, uh, view is that over you know, tens of thousands of years, uh, we've evolved to respond to certain nutritional environments, but an excess of nutrition is not one of them. And, and very often the way people think of diabetes is the body not really dealing with this excess of nutrients. Some people think that the cells no longer responding to insulin is actually uh, the cells trying to protect themselves from too much, uh, too much uh, nutrition or too much calories, too much food coming in. Are you suggesting that the body is trying to protect itself from too much fat, too much sugar calories, uh, too much fructose sugar calories, or too much protein calories? Which kind is the body protecting itself from when it starts to resist the insulin signal? That's still an open question that people are trying to figure out. A lot of scientists are working on. I think in recent years, certainly the interest has shifted dramatically from, uh, from fat to sugar, but in a strange sort of way. There's this paradox that we've re uh, you know, that recognized very recently, probably both best uh, illustrated by the enthusiasm about the Atkins diet. I think we all know that high lipids are associated with heart disease. Meaning if you have super high cholesterol, not medium high, but super high. Super high cholesterol are associated with heart disease. People with diabetes, particularly the adult onset insulin resistant diabetes, the major life-threatening part of the disease is heart disease. And a major part of diabetes is abnormalities in those, in those blood fats. Now, for many years, we've always focused on the fact that diabetes is an illness of sugar. And that is correct. It is the most obvious part of the disease. When somebody has diabetes, their blood sugars tend to go higher. Exactly. And that is, that is the definition of diabetes. When we simply, as physicians, ask the question, does somebody have diabetes, that is defined exclusively in the context of, is their blood sugar too high? When somebody has high blood sugars, in a strange paradox, sometimes they can have incredibly high insulin levels as well, but the cells are going, I don't want to hear you anymore. I don't want any more of that sugar. So one way of thinking of it is the cells no longer respond to insulin telling them to take up the sugar. What insulin wants, wants a cell to do is it wants a cell after a meal to take up that sugar and to store it in a way that that sugar will be available for periods when the person isn't eating. So insulin is a hormone normally, is a, is a circulating chemical in the blood that goes high when there's a lot of food, when you're eating a lot. And what the job of insulin is to tell those cells that are, that are programmed to respond to it, take all of this food and store it in your cell, put it in a form such that it will be available when there's no food around. Well, you know what, though? If a cell takes in more energy than it needs, could it make that cell sick? And that is exactly what many people think the insulin resistance is. It's a way of the cell protecting itself, which might be good in the short run, but is, is not good for the, the, the body in the long run. In other words, what the, what the cell is doing is saying, I'm not going to respond to insulin when insulin tells me to take up the sugar, and that's going to keep me from accumulating too many 
nutrients that are bad for me. But what happens is if the cells don't take up that sugar, then the sugar levels start getting very high in the blood. And that can have negative consequences. Well, yes, high sugars in the blood can damage all kinds of cells that line the, the body. So you think that the high blood sugars can make inflammation worse in the blood vessels in the kidneys and in the arteries? Well, what's very clear and, and has been shown over and over again is that two of the biggest problems with um, diabetes and high blood sugar, that is eye disease and kidney disease, are direct results of high blood sugar. What's interesting is we as scientists have been unable to gather experimental support for the notion that heart disease, which is also very important to diabetes, that the heart disease is due to the high blood sugar as opposed to due to some other aspect of diabetes, which is associated with the high blood sugar, but not the high blood sugar itself. Could it be that the high insulin levels are more associated with heart disease? The two best candidates are the high insulin levels, which might well be associated with heart disease, but also, even though we think of diabetes um, in terms of sugars, diabetes, particularly the adult onset kind, is very much associated with abnormal fats in uh, circulating in the blood. And we know that even people who don't have diabetes high fats, in particular high cholesterol, can cause heart disease. So now there's a lot of thinking that perhaps it's the abnormal fats circulating in the bloodstream, which also might contribute to the heart disease of diabetes. High insulin levels and high sugar levels can both be things that increase the chance of sickness in the body and also the way that when insulin levels are high, sugars get turned to fat and the body gets locked out from burning the fat that is in food. So whether you eat the fat or you eat sugar, as long as you're having high insulin levels, both of those will be just stuck in the body and not being burned for energy. That is quite a problem. And having all of that energy stuck in the body, there's really only two ways of dealing with it. You can either burn more, which is why exercise is really such a, such a good treatment for diabetes, or you can consume less, which is why um, so many doctors recommend weight loss as a therapy for diabetes. All right, before we go on, let's look at some of these pieces that apply to metformin, because you were mentioning that high insulin levels are one problem, high sugar levels are another problem. Metformin maybe makes cells more sensitive to insulin so they can take in more sugar. Maybe it actually acts kind of like an insulin that pushes the sugar into cells. So it can do all those things. But just to clarify, what can insulin act on? Can it act on glucose sugar, like the sugar in potatoes? Can it act on fructose sugar, like the sugar in a table sugar or in a soda? Can it act on protein? Can it act on fat? Which ones does insulin deliver to the cells and say, put this inside of you? Well, actually, it, it, the short answer is at least some types of sugar, fat, and protein respond to insulin in the sense of going into some cell types. Now, insulin, first of all, let's talk about the cell types. Insulin doesn't work on all cell types. Again, as I mentioned, insulin is really in the business of telling cells 
to store nutrients and keep them around for, for times of need. And there are only some tissues that are in the business of doing that. Fat cells, obviously, are the professional energy storing cells. And it's why when you have most nutrients around and there's high, high insulin, you get fat because you have more larger fat cells. Now, they have a result from insulin telling some sugar to go into the cells and turn into fat, but also telling some fats that come from the diet to go into those fat cells and store there. It also takes fats that are made from sugar in, what is it, the liver? To, and, and it says, go on into some cells and wait around there until you're needed. Exactly. And then the other, so the two cells, the two organs that insulin really tells to take up sugars are fat cells and muscle cells. Fat cells, it takes up the sugar to keep it in case you're not eating and it releases it. Muscle, it tells you, take up, it tells the muscle to take up sugar so that when you're exercising, there's plenty of nutrients around to support that exercise. Now, how about the liver? Does the body and does insulin tell the liver to take up sugar and turn it into fat and keep the sugar, fat, whatever it is with the liver? Well, the liver does two things with sugar, and insulin encourages it to do both. One is to turn the um, sugar into, uh, into, into fat, where it then goes out to the fat cells to sit waiting to be, to be needed. But insulin has another very, very important function in terms of telling the liver what to do. And this is probably the place where metformin has its greatest effect. Now, what happens is when you're not eating, your brain needs sugar. We all know that the brain is absolutely dependent on sugar, and if you don't have it for a while, you, you don't think so well. Let's put that in context. The brain needs a little bit of sugar. The brain can also be getting some energy from different kinds of fats. I think ketone bodies is one kind of fat. Right. But even if the brain is adapted to getting energy from some kinds of fat, it still needs at least a little bit of sugar. And it takes a while sometimes to, to develop the skills to use fat. So in other words, if you don't eat for a couple of days, the brain is beginning to adapt to using fat ty types of fat, but it actually takes a couple of days for the brain to learn that. And for those first two days you're not eating, the brain really needs sugar. And the place where you get the sugar when you're not eating it is the liver makes that sugar. How does the liver make sugar? It takes some of the chemicals that are being made by muscle and to a certain extent um, fat, and they float around in the bloodstream, go, go to the liver, and the liver turns them back into glucose. And this is really, really the major job of the liver when you're not eating, is to give that brain the precious glucose by taking other chemicals which are a result of muscle doing work and getting broken down, and they flow through the bloodstream, go to the liver, and the liver um, turns them back into glucose, and they go to the brain. All right, so, th so the liver can turn uh, triglycerides. They can pull a little bit of the glyceride out to make sugar. The liver can use glycogen, which is the kind of starchy granules that the liver makes out of carbs. The liver can melt muscle to make more sugar. The liver can melt bone to make more sugar. And, and if muscle, it's, it's, it, it's what it's using a lot of, is it's using a lot of the protein that's stored in muscle, which is why, one of the reasons why when you don't eat, <clears throat> your, pro, your muscles begin getting smaller because it's using some of that muscle 
some of that protein that's in muscle to give you the energy to walk around, but it's also using a lot of that protein uh, that's in, um, uh, in muscle to go to the liver and make sugar for the brain. Now, what kind of blood sugar level does somebody need to keep the brain from starving if they are sensitive to the signal of insulin? What kind of blood sugar level? A blood sugar, depending upon the person, has to be in the range of 60 to 80 for the brain to be happy. I hear that that's especially guys, that women can dip even lower if they're insulin sensitive and have blood sugars in the 50s and their brain can still function. And that's why I say it depends on the individual. Women can get lower. And also, if your blood sugars are lower for a while, you get used to it. The brain gets better at using those blood sugars. So how low you can go also depends on whether it's just happening suddenly or it's happening slowly over a period of time. The brain can get more used to pulling energy from some forms of fat in addition to sugar, and it can get so that it doesn't need a lot of sugar. But in a diabetic, the strange thing is that so many diabetics go to bed and they check their blood sugar before they go to bed. And it's, say, the high, the mid-100s, which they're glad about because they're used to that. You know, that's not great, but it's not super bad. But then they wake up and they haven't eaten anything all night, and their blood sugar is... 200, it's 300, it's, it's much higher than it was when they went to bed. Right. And that's, you know, that's an example of one of those normal processes going out of control. In other words, you know, when, when all of us go to bed and we don't eat, what happens is our liver begins making glucose for the brain. But in a diabetic, that's one of the things that really gets out of control. The liver makes too much glucose. And that's why the diabetic wakes up with two or 300 um, uh, glucose um, measurements, and that makes us feel lousy. And in fact, the major, if not the only thing that determines what our glucose is when we wake up in the morning after need, not sleeping all night is how much glucose our liver is making. And insulin is one of the major ways that the liver knows not to make too much insulin in a normal person. If it begins making too much, I'm sorry, it makes too much glucose. In a normal person, if the liver gets out of control and makes too much glucose, insulin levels go up and insulin tells the liver, stop making glucose, you're making too much. But in a diabetic individual, when that happens, the glucose levels go up, the insulin levels goes up, but once again, just like fat and muscle, the liver doesn't respond normally to the, to the insulin, and the glucose production doesn't shut off. One thing that they might want to look for is what is their blood sugar before they go to bed, and what is their blood sugar when they wake up? And if their blood sugar is lower when they wake up, that's a good sign. If it's higher, there's a problem. So when we ask, do, does somebody have diabetes, there are two different times that we basically want to know, is their blood sugar too high? Is their blood sugar too high when they wake up in the morning? And that's called fasting blood sugar. And is their blood sugar too high after a meal? And you test that either by measuring it after a meal or even giving them an artificial meal so we know exactly how much they've had, a so-called glucose tolerance test. And diabetics often fall into two different groups. Some have blood sugars that are too high in the morning, and that's due to their liver making too much during the night. And some have blood sugars that are too high after a meal, and that's due to their, to their muscle primarily not taking up the blood sugar after a meal. And, and which one does metformin seem to help the most? And metformin helps the liver. 
Metformin helps primarily in our work in this really involves studying the liver. So the major effect of metformin is to keep the liver from making too much blood sugar um, uh, during a fast. And that is the biggest effect of metformin, and it's a very striking effect. And of course, one of the, one of the consequences of that is if you keep the liver from making blood glucose, and that keeps the insulin lower. And that's why metformin such a good drug. Well, are there any side effects from taking metformin? The major side effect from taking metformin is, is nausea, vomiting. Sometimes people have diarrhea. These kind of upset stomach type of symptoms, for some people, go away if they keep taking the metformin. Sometimes they're just bad for people to even keep taking it. Some people can kind of get through feeling lousy and uh, the nausea, and, and those symptoms will go away. Other people can't get through the nausea and, and just can't take metformin, and that's why it's so important to figure out how metformin works. Because once we know how metformin works, maybe we can design other drugs which don't have those side effects and work just as well or maybe even better than metformin. Well, let's do a little sleuthing here. What tells the liver to start making sugar? What, what's, what's the signal that the liver's getting that tells the liver, oh my gosh, I have to make more sugar? Well, just like, just like insulin is a chemical that circulates in the blood, a so-called hormone. A hormone is simply a chemical that's made by one part of the body to go through the bloodstream and tell another part of the body what to do. There's another hormone that goes up during fasting. Now, it's made by the pancreas, the same place that insulin is made, but it's not called insulin. It's called glucagon. And glucagon is the chemical that tells the liver, make more glucose because glucose levels are going down in the blood, and now we're beginning to worry about whether the brain is getting enough glucose. Would it help to tell glucagon to settle down and don't yell so loud? It absolutely would. And there are, you know, as always, there are two ways of doing that. One is keeping the body from making glucagon. That turns out to be bad for two reasons. One, it's very hard to do, but there's always a chance, even for a diabetic, that there's going to be a time when he or she needs more glucose, so you don't want to eliminate this system completely. You just want to tone it down a bit. Well, but in a person who's healthy, their body knows how to tone down glucagon and how to tone it up as needed. It doesn't swing too wide one way or the other. So what's gone wrong with glucagon in a diabetic? Well, you know, that's something we really, really don't know. What we know is there is too much glucagon in a diabetic, and too much glucagon action. Sometimes it's hard to figure out whether there's too much of the hormone or just the cells are too sensitive to it. But either way, it seems that in a diabetic, an adult diabetic, glucagon is out of control. Insulin isn't working so well, and glucagon is working too well. And, um, and that's just part of the disease, I'm afraid. We just don't understand these days. We don't know how to make glucagon go up or down with medications, but are there certain ways that people eat that seem to keep that glucagon signal from going crazy and loud? Well, the two things that make glucagon go up are um, a decrease in glucose and an increase in protein. Now, we don't want to tell people not to eat protein because protein's good for you. Oh, but you know what? That's very interesting. I did not know that glucagon goes up when somebody eats protein because there are plenty of people who eat tons of protein assuming that it's not an issue because it's not sugar and it's not fat. 
So people always think of glucagon and insulin doing opposite things. But in fact, when you eat a lot of protein but not sugar, both your insulin and glucagon go up. But if you stop and think about it, it really makes sense because what that does is it, the glucagon tells the liver to convert the protein into glucose and the insulin tells the muscle to take up the glucose and store it. And that's just what you want to do when you're eating all protein and no sugar. Oh, so that's when somebody's eating excess protein, and so their body doesn't need the protein for building blocks in the body. And so it goes, oh my gosh, what do I do with all this extra protein? And then the liver says, I, I can at least make it into sugar and split off the ammonia and pee out the ammonia, and we'll have something we can do something with. That's absolutely right. The body is very smart at, at, at dealing with unbalanced diets within a, a very large range. The body is quite good at dealing with these, these strange diets. When somebody has a body that converts one form of energy into another, is it just that the body's trying to save a lot of energy and, and put it someplace where it can use it? Or is it that that energy in its unprocessed state is very dangerous? And if you leave it floating around in the body, it's going to cause some problems. I think the energy form we worry about the most these days is fat. Is, is fat accumulating and, 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 and being um, stored in cells that it's not supposed to. And I think that's, these days, we worry about fat. And I don't, you know, I don't know whether that's because fat is more dangerous than too much of the other energy forms or just, again, you know, we eat so much and so much it's converted into fat that that's what Americans have the most of. You said so much is converted into fat. So is the issue how much fat Americans are eating or that they're eating other things that end up turning into fat once they're in the body? The answer to that question is very different today than it was 20 years ago. I think that's a, that's, that's a question that we've really learned a lot about. I think many years ago um, when we wanted to keep fat down in our body, it seemed like the most obvious way of doing it was to eat less fat. But now we're realizing that the body is so good at turning sugar into fat that in many ways, the best way to keep your fat down is to keep your sugar down. And again, that's why there was so much excitement about the Atkins diet, which was low, low sugar, high fat, because in fact, those people ended up with the same or less fat than the people eating fat. It's a very strange um, a paradox that eating sugar ends up causing almost more fat than eating fat, but that's the way the body deals with it. And you even say that somebody eating loads of protein, if their body's confused enough, a lot of that protein turns into sugar too. So it may be that for somebody whose body is that sick, what's the nutrient left that they can eat more safely? If you're going to have a balanced diet, but there's one thing you're going to worry about keeping low, I think it's sugar. And it's also a particular type of sugar. It's simple sugar. It's, uh, it's, it's not complex sugar, which is broken down slowly and therefore in a healthy way. It's those simple sugars like sucrose and fructose and glucose. Those are the ones that the body really loves turning into fat and therefore are worse for you. That's the background of how diet can affect whether somebody has high sugar levels or high fat levels in their blood. I'm, I'm curious, when somebody eats this way where they pull back on the refined sugars and starches, or if that doesn't work, if they just pull back on carbs entirely and eat more fat, 
what happens to their glucagon levels? Do their glucagon levels tend to adapt and go down or up? A normal person in that situation will tend to have high glucagon, which is because they're not eating a lot of sugars and they need to make their own, and they do that when glucagon is high. How long will that high glucagon last before they adapt? Is it two days? Is it two weeks? Glucagon really adapts on a minute-to-minute -minute basis. If, if, you know, if, if, they, if they haven't eaten sugar for a while, and that sugar is low, the glucagon will glow, go up, and as the blood sugar it corrects under the influence of glucagon, the glucagon will immediately come back down. But glucagon adjusts to the blood glucose um, on a literally a minute-to-minute -minute basis. That's if somebody's healthy, but what you've described are people where their blood sugars are kind of going down to a normal level instead of being super high, and the liver is insulin-resistant and so it says, oh my gosh, I need more sugar. And so does the rest of the body. And that, so, so on the end of whether cells are insulin sensitive or insulin resistant, can that take longer? Can that take two weeks before cells become insulin sensitive again, which might mean that they don't yell for glucagon as much? So in a, in a, um, in a typical diabetic, the changes that normal people have from a meal to not eating to a meal to not eating don't exist. If you look at the blood chemicals in a um, in a somebody with diabetes, in many ways it looks like they're always fed. Now, if you stop eating or you decrease the amount of food you take and get on a really reasonable diet and begin losing weight, you can actually see improvements in insulin sensitivity and blood sugar and insulin in two to three weeks. It happens very very quickly surprisingly quickly. Does it matter to you how someone loses weight, whether it's an Atkins diet or a Dean Ornish diet? Probably not. It's, you know, there's a lot of arguments about that, but I think the plain fact of the matter is that if you reduce your calories you're taking in or you increase the calories you're burning by exercise, it's good for you and it will improve your blood glucose and it will improve your insulin levels. It really can help the glucagon and the insulin and the cellular sensitivity to insulin and glucagon settle back into a beautiful pattern. Absolutely right. In fact, there are many people who, who think about diabetes a lot, and they say that why do we work so hard on developing drugs? In fact, um, we know what the best thing for diabetes is. It's weight loss. We know that losing weight and exercising more will, in fact, um, cure diabetes for the most part. If you're doing it right, then you lose weight around the body organs so that you lose the fattiness that tends to accumulate around the liver, which is not, that's, that's the worst kind of fat to have is fat around the liver. Well, it's not just fat around the liver, it's also fat in the liver cells. The fat accumulates around your tissues like muscle and, and, and liver and heart, by the way. Fat accumulates around and inside your heart cells and many people think that's why the heart doesn't do so well and that's why the liver doesn't do so well. Fat accumulates everywhere. And many people think that, you know, the reason we get fat and our fat cells get bigger is that's a protective, uh, that's a protective event. That's our body saying, you know, fat is bad for you so let's put it somewhere it doesn't hurt. Let's put it in those fat cells and it's only when those fat cells fill up that the fat starts accumulating in other cell types and it's bad. I wonder about that phrase that fat is bad for you because you've described how excess protein and excess sugar in the body get turned into fat. And so why did the body bother to turn them into fat if fat is bad for you? Could it be that fat is less bad than having excess protein and sugar running through the body? 
Well, you know, it, it's, it's, I think there's an element of that, and I think there's an element of where the fat is. In other words, when fat is in a fat cell where it's designed to be, it's probably not that bad for you. But when those fat cells begin getting full and the fat starts accumulating in places it's not supposed to be, that's when it really gets bad for you, and that's where it gets unhealthy. So that's part of another interesting paradox because some people who have diabetes who go into the hospital or are just living in the community, if they're more obese, they tend to live longer than somebody whose blood sugars are higher who is less obese. And is there a possibility that their fat cells are better at taking this dangerous stuff and putting it away, even though they're heavier? You know, I just want, yes, I, I think that's absolutely right. You know, I just want to make the point that most of the, the, the complicated chemical processes that, that, that we've evolved to have, that, you know, that have developed in people to protect them from changes in dietary intake, have happened over tens of thousands of years when obesity has been very, very uncommon. You know, the, the amount of food and the modern lifestyle where we don't have to exercise very much to get through the day is relatively recent. We're talking 50 or 100 years. So most of the, the processes that work so efficiently in the body of a normal person are designed to deal with not having enough food. These processes are not designed to deal with having too much food. And it's, it's that situation we've created for ourselves in modern society where we've inflicted on a body um, that just doesn't know how to deal with nutrient excess. That, you know, for most of, most of the development of, of, of people and animals, you know, we've had to worry about periods of not having food, not periods of having too much food. And especially not too much sugar, perhaps? And especially not too much sugar. Sugar, remember, most of the sugar we eat is, is, is man-made. It's not coming from natural products. Thank you for all of that overview, which may be useful for us jumping in now and looking at metformin. Absolutely. So metformin is, is this drug that helps a lot of diabetics because it helps their blood sugar stay lower. And you're saying it helps their blood sugar stay lower because somehow it interferes or it blocks some process or it makes some cell more sensitive. What is going on? What, what have people thought is going on with metformin? Well, the first thing to realize about metformin is like so many of drugs that are in use today, it wasn't a drug that was developed with an idea towards let's figure out a way of keeping blood sugar low. Metformin comes out of the world of herbal remedies. Metformin's been around for at least three or four hundred years, maybe a lot more than that. I did not know that there was a plant called metformin. But what's the herb? The plant is actually called, has a lot of different names. In this country, it's called goat's rue, it's, which some people might have heard of. It's also called French lilac. It's also called professor's weed, which I think is one of the most interesting. But I think we probably know it most as goat's rue or, um, or French lilac. It's, it's native to Europe. It's spread all over uh, the United States. It's actually a very pretty plant. It has white or, or, or blue-purple flowers in the summer. And it's, it's, it grows quite easily and, and, and quite widely. And it's been used over the last 500 years for many, many different types of ailments. But in all cases, people who have used it... Um, uh, have noticed that it lowers blood sugar. It's still in a lot of herbal remedy books. Um, the problem is that the natural, um, the natural metformin, so to speak, that come out of uh, this this herbal plant are are not as safe. You can easily take too much of it. So what scientists have done, largely at the 
early part of the 20th century is starting with the active chemicals in, in goat's rue, have tried to develop um, chemicals that are similar, have the same effect on, on blood sugar, but aren't as dangerous. So that's metformin. It comes from that very pretty bush that we call the lilac, especially the French lilac. Exactly. Okay, so what does it do in the body? So as I said, over the years we've known that it lowers blood sugar, and it lowers blood sugar both when you're not eating as well as when you're eating. That immediately tells us that it has to be working at least in part and probably in large part on the liver. Because remember, as we said earlier, the blood sugar during fasting is controlled exclusively by the liver. So simply knowing that metformin reduces your fasting blood sugar tells us that it might and must be working during uh, must be working on the liver. Now, most people, I believe, have said that metformin works because it makes the liver more sensitive to insulin. Do you think that's correct? I actually, I, I, you know, that, that is controversial. And if you ask different experts, you'll get different answers. I actually think that metformin is not making the liver more sensitive to insulin. What it's really doing is acting like insulin. It's providing an insulin-like stimulus on the liver. All so, right. So you've done a new study, which kind of verifies this. Right. So, you know, there have been a lot of ideas about how metformin works. And um, one thing that occurred to us a couple of years ago is, gee, since we know that there is this other chemical which causes the liver to make more blood glucose, we know it goes up in fasting in normal people, but it's much too high all the time in diabetes. Maybe metformin isn't working on its own, but it's working specifically to block the actions of this other chemical, this other hormone I mentioned earlier, glucagon. Well, and, and in fact, glucagon, um, it, it slows down. D- does it slow down when insulin blocks it in the liver? Does, does insulin go in and say, liver, don't pay any more attention to that glucagon. Things are going to be okay. Well, there's always a constant battle between insulin and glucagon in trying to get the liver to do what it wants it to do. Um, and uh, so when you, when, you, when, you, when you have a certain amount of glucagon, it's working on the liver. When you add a little bit of insulin, it'll reduce the amount of glucagon action. Because when it comes to making glucose in the liver, glucagon and insulin are doing exactly the opposite. One is telling the liver to make more glucose. The other is telling the liver to make less glucose. Now, you sorted some of this out by developing or using mice that don't have some of the ways to use metformin that people thought were the ways that metformin needed to be used, and they still responded to the metformin. Right. So about 10 or 15 years ago, it became very, a very exciting result came out saying that, that, um, that metformin was working through a particular chemical in the liver that at that time was thought to reduce um, blood sugar. And there were all these experiments um, uh, supporting that and thinking it was the case. And it was only in the last couple of years when some collaborators of ours developed a mouse that completely lacked this protein, this chemical in liver, and metformin still worked. And uh, you know, one of the major accomplishments in, in modern science has been this ability to, 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 to manipulate the genes in mice and make mice that are lacking very specific proteins. And this was an example where if we didn't have this, this, this mutant mouse, which by the way is perfectly healthy otherwise, does great, if we didn't have this mutant mouse, we would never really know that metformin can't be working through this protein because it works when this protein isn't there. Say, what is that protein? 
It's, it's something called AMP-activated protein kinase. It's a long name, but what it really is there for is it's there in all animals, you know, you know uh, all animals that we know of, either single cell yeast to people. And what it does is it's a protein that, that detects whether you're running out of energy, and when you're running out of energy, it tells the body, don't use energy, make more energy. Um, it's a type of protein called a protein kinase, but it's a, it really its job is to send signals in the cells. Well, and it seems that when people or animals have a high level of AMPK, this, this kinase, that they tend to burn fat for energy and burn calories for energy instead of storing them. Absolutely, because when you're, when you're low in energy, when you're low in, in the basic building blocks, what you want to do is you want to burn up what you have and stop making new things except when you have to. And, um, and, that's, and that's what this AMPK tells the body to do. That's what its job is. That's a good job for it to have because people who are diabetic often are insulin resistant. Their cells are resistant to taking in energy. And so to have more of an enzyme that says, stop storing stuff and start taking in energy for, and start burning the energy you have, that's kind of a good thing for the body to hear. And in fact, it's so good that even though we now believe that metformin doesn't work through activating AMPK, a lot of drug companies are trying to find drugs that do directly activate AMPK because they believe that that will also be a good drug for diabetes. Well, there's been a lot of thought that metformin does work through AMPK activation, even though it's not that strong an activator of AMPK, actually. That's right. And, it's, uh, it's, and, and there are certain things that, that just don't make a lot of sense in what it does, particularly in liver. One of the things, of course, is that AMPK also does the same thing in muscle, and metformin doesn't work that well in muscle. So it's, 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 it's pretty complicated. But we're, we're hoping that, that by finding out that metformin doesn't work the way we thought it worked, will ultimately a good, be a good thing and lead us to, to, to new avenues to design drugs. And in fact, in your new paper, you have some conjectures and clues about what you think is happening with metformin. If it doesn't work through AMPK, what's it doing? Well, we think it's really interfering with how glucagon sends its message, which starts at the outside of the cell, through the cell to tell that cell, make more glucose. So over the years, many scientists have learned a lot about what we call signaling events, that is how a hormone, which instructs a cell to do things, actually sends its message inside the cell. Metformin may help the liver cells become more resistant to the signal of glucagon, so that when there's metformin in the body, the metformin says to the liver cells, don't pay any attention to that glucagon, just ignore it right now. You have enough energy. That is absolutely right. That's a great way of saying exactly what we're doing. We're trying to make, uh, we think metformin makes a glucagon-resistant liver. So even though there's all that glucagon around, the glucagon can't tell the liver make more glucose. The liver makes less glucose and the blood sugar goes down. What about somebody whose blood sugars are not all that high? If you lock out the glucagon signal, is there a risk that by taking some new drug that blocks the glucagon signal, their blood sugars could go too low? Absolutely. And um, many strategies to block the glucagon system have failed because of that. I guess there are two reasons why that's not a big problem with metformin. First, there are other ways of maintaining blood glucose in addition to glucagon, though glucagon is the most important. But even more striking than that, while metformin 
causes the liver not to respond as well to glucagon, it doesn't shut off the response completely. So that liver can still, if glucagon levels get high enough and it really needs the glucagon, it will, um, it will still respond to glucagon. Isn't that interesting that our body has several ways to raise blood sugar? There's glucagon, cortisol is another one, so stress hormones raise blood sugar. But the only thing that can bring blood sugars down is insulin. For the most part, that's right. And, I, you know, and the reason for that, I think, is that if you think about it, you know, if, you, if you think about which is more important, the brain getting enough sugar to function or sugar being converted into fat to go into fat cells, well, I mean, if you had a choice of which one to lose, you'd obviously lose the fat cell. So I think the body has more ways of keeping sugar up than making it go down because, again, for most of humankind's existence, the biggest danger has been not enough sugar. How ironic now that we are, as Americans, eating 130 pounds of sugar a year. Exactly. If there's a new drug developed based on what you found out, are you going to make a bunch of big bucks on a patent? I would doubt that. Um, that's certainly not something, uh, you know, we think about a lot. Um, uh, you know, what we think about, you know, one of the things is if we, for example, you know, a lot of the chemicals like metformin, um, drug companies don't make a lot of money from because you can't patent them. They've been around too long. Uh, I, I think, you know, one of, the, one of the things about the kind of research that, that I and my colleagues do is, is very, very basic research, which means when you're in the business of trying to discover new ways of making drugs, new strategies for designing it, the time it takes to actually get from that plan to the drug can be very, very long. It's getting shorter, but we're still talking about five or ten years, unfortunately, for those people with diabetes. So I think that even though we're very excited about new strategies to develop drugs, there's still a lot of steps between between identifying those plans and really seeing them come out as, as a, a, a drug to really help a lot of people. That's our goal. That's what we're aiming for. But there's still a lot of work to be and, done. And do you like the fact that you're being a Sherlock Holmes of body cells and illness and health by looking at this? This is why I chose this career. For me, the most, the most fun is solving problems. And when you're dealing with the human body, particularly the normal human body, one of the things you know is that when you start asking a question about how things work in human biology, one of the great things is knowing that when you figure out how it works, it does work. And it works beautifully. The human body has been put together for you know, millions of years of evolution and everything works beautifully. So the way we tend to actually approach questions about diabetes is we like to say, before we ask the question, how does a normal biological process get messed up in diabetes, the first question we ask is, how does it work normally? And then once we understand how it works normally, then we ask how it gets messed up. It's only through knowing how glucagon normally controls blood glucose did we come to understanding how metformin blocks that effect. Well, you know, your research that shows that blocking the response of glucagon in the liver, you're making the liver a little weaker at listening to something. Well, you can do that by drinking red wine. And red wine has resveratrol in it, which is uh, another thing that tends to increase AMPK and reduce, what is it, AMPD? It increases AMPK by causing more ADP. That's actually very interesting because metformin is a drug that's been thought to work through AMPK for a long time. 
and now turns out not to. Resveratrol is a drug which has not been thought to work to it through AMPK till very recently, and all the evidence now is pointing to the fact that it does work through AMPK. And red wine is higher in resveratrol than a lot of other things. Red wine is the highest source of resveratrol. Unfortunately, to see the effects of resveratrol that people have found from giving it to mice, you have to drink many bottles of wine each day, which wouldn't be a good thing. And in fact, there's some research that indicates that resveratrol's biggest effect with red wine may be that in the stomach, it helps reduce the number of free radicals that get into the intestines and then into the bloodstream. So who knows? Yeah, I just want to also, just if, if I can, move away from diabetes for a moment, because right now, one of the most exciting areas of research is that metformin also might be good for cancer. And there's uh, almost more research going on among people who are studying cancer uh, with trials uh, of metformin uh, than there are in diabetes. We know that metformin works for diabetes. The big question is, will it work for cancer? There's a lot of indications that at least for some cancers, metformin really might be a very good drug. Hmm. So it might reduce the need for high insulin levels. It might reduce that. It might reduce the inclination of a body to produce more sugars. Cancer eats sugars. And insulin tends to promote such rapid cell division that it tends to increase the risk of cells mutating in, in a Absolutely. bad way. Absolutely. So what people are trying to figure out now is, is, is what appears to be a, a, you know, a good effect of metformin uh, to prevent or to slow down the, uh, the um, uh, growth of cancer, is that due to an effect of the metformin on the cancer cell, which is one idea, or the other thought is maybe by decreasing insulin and sugar, it's uh, actually starving the cancer to a certain extent, and that's what's causing it. And there's a lot of research going on trying to figure out what it is, but it, it, it looks pretty exciting. Well, thank you for adding a piece of insight into what we know about this very popular drug. And, you know, I, I can't help but wondering if people hear this and they think, well, what are the things I eat and the ways that I exercise that tend to make my blood sugars lower in the morning than they were in the evening? Could they be on the right track for how to eat for themselves? Uh, I, yes, I, and I think, I think that's correct. I think in certain extents that's correct, but assert to, a, to another, another way of looking at it is um, that in many ways for people, people should be thinking also of what it is that makes my blood sugar go up the quickest and the highest. There's some thought as to the idea that if you take sugar and you can spread out the, the rise in blood sugar over a long time instead of having it go up very fast after a meal, that might be healthier. It's certainly what we tell diabetics to do. We tell them, you know, eat less simple sugars, which make your blood sugar go up right away, like sucrose and fructose, and eat more complex sugars. And, and there's more and more evidence coming out now that it's your patterns of eating might have a lot to do with getting overweight and, uh, and, um, and developing diabetes. And there's one part that's hidden, though, and that's that there are some individuals where their blood sugars stay normal, but there's something more expensive that they don't test all the time, and that's their insulin levels. And there are people where their blood sugars stay normal because their insulin levels go sky high, and that person is a sitting duck for a fatty liver and obesity in ways that most people don't even have to think about. Right. And there's a lot more of those people than there are diabetes, people with diabetes. So one way we think about it is we think that when, 
when insulin doesn't work well on cells, the insulin levels start going higher and higher and higher. And if the insulin can keep up with the need for more insulin and keep that blood sugar normal, that person doesn't develop diabetes. They develop other problems. Now, what happens is if the pancreas can't keep up with the increased need for insulin, and it, 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 it has high insulin but still not high enough, now the blood sugar goes up and they get diabetes. So, so one way of thinking of it is the disease itself, or the primary abnormality, the first abnormality is, uh, is an inability of insulin to work appropriately on cells. If you can make enough insulin to correct that, to make up for it, then you never get diabetes, but you still are predisposed to heart disease and high blood pressure and a lot of other bad things. Well, do you agree with this new study that says that people are better off being a little more fat? There are some problems with that study, and I think we have to look at that a, a, a little more closely, repeated in a number of different ways. I'm not quite ready to, to accept that. And one of the reasons why, of course, is there is such a thing as being too thin, and we all agree with that. If you simply look at the incidence of disease related to weight, as, as any as wouldn't surprise anybody, you reach a point where you get so thin that it's not good for you. And there's diseases such as cancer and tuberculosis and HIV AIDS that make people skinny long before they die. So I think we have to make sure that when we ask the question, is being a little bit heavy good for you? We have to make sure that we're not including those people in the study because they're going to make it look like being overweight is better than it is. Say, Morris Birnbaum, are you skinny or are you not? That's a great question, and you can't see me. I'm, I'm, I'm not skinny, but I'm skinnier than I used to be. Well, good for you, and I'll bet you've learned a lot about how your own glucagon works, and you're working on that. And it's, uh, it's really uh, it's very interesting, and it's a lot of fun to do. Okay. Well, thank you very much. I think, that, I think we've covered it. What do you think? I think so also. That's University of Pennsylvania researcher Morris Birnbaum. This is an extended interview from the KGNU Science Show that aired January 8, 2013. I'm Shelley Schlender. Find out more at howonearthradio.org.